I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with activist and voting rights advocate Maya Contreras. Maya Contreras is running for Congress in New York's 12th Congressional District. And I met Maya shortly following the 2016 election. She was one of the very first guests on The Electorate. And I've always known her to be a passionate advocate for voting rights, housing rights, the rights of artists, and of course, for reproductive justice. And she's using that same passion in advocating for the needs of the people in her district. In this conversation, we talk about what brought her to this moment to run for office. We also talk about some of the legislation that is being held up in Congress right now, like voting rights legislation, for instance. And I get Maya's opinion on why Congress seems to be at an impasse on many of the most important bills. And she doesn't mince words. So please enjoy my conversation with Maya Contreras. Maya Contreras, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me, Jen. I appreciate it. It's so good to talk to you again. I think I want to tell the audience how we met. So I think we met back in 2017 or 2018. And you were ahead of the American Women's Party and you had a conference in D.C. And that was a really exhilarating time for me and for a lot of people because there was so much energy as a reaction against, you know, misogyny in politics. You know, what happened in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. And I remember that conference, you know, Shannon Watts was there. Toronto Burke and you remember that oh, right yes oh absolutely <laughs> because I booked all of them that's why <laughs> yeah I mean to me it was great because it was like in this little house like this kind of adorable space in Washington DC and we kind of all got to run around the building and listen to these really brilliant advocates writers activists talk about their work and it was really almost like a three-day intensive kind of learn about from them their different experiences, like listening to Rebecca Coakley discuss issues within the disability community and uh, for even Rex Kendi to discuss his new anti-racism policy center, which now is like expanded to Boston. And now he's expanding. He started a paper and he's, he's doing like television, you know, so it's just, it's, it's huge. And I feel like we got to know them when, and um, you know, cause Rebecca actually is moving to New York to, and she'll be working for the Ford Foundation. So yeah, during that time, it, it was, it was a time where we were trying to, you know, galvanize ourselves to deal with the fact that 2016 really shook us all to the core, some more than others, right? Like I will say that I'm, I'm in New York and uh, amongst my guy friends, the vast majority of whom are black men, they were like, Maya, why are you surprised by this? This country has never failed to disappoint us. Right. So they were more they were not as surprised that Trump won. I, on the other hand, was like really devastated. I really thought that that Clinton had a chance to win. If there was a straw that broke my camel's back, (laughs) (laughs) it would probably be that would be that was the first one was recognizing that this democracy that we already knew was fragile was there was something really fundamentally broken there. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's nice to have met that way. It felt like all of the energy, the activism energy was kind of elevated at that time. And, you know, we were all both, you know, fearful and angry and energized at the same time. So, but, you know, so it's nice to see you come full circle. So why now? Were you thinking about running back then or did this happen more recently? Why now? Why are you running for Congress now? I never, ever, ever considered running for office only because I've worked on campaigns before throughout the years I've consulted on campaigns before and I see what a painful process that it is and I see a lot of some really good people really compromising themselves muting themselves 
It's one of the reasons why Marion Wright Edelman, who started the Children's Defense Fund, was like, I'm not running for office because she never wanted to compromise the values that she had to help children and people in poverty. And for me, where the shift changed for me was COVID. To me, I had always been an advocate, a housing advocate. I became a voting rights advocate after 2013 when the Voting Rights Act was gutted. But before then, I was a housing advocate because I had grown up in poverty. Uh, My mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 13 years old, and she passed away a few years after that. And I really dealt with bureaucracy early on. And when I was working with housing issues at 16, I was dealing with city council leaders and members then. I did the same thing when I was in college at FSU. I worked with homeless shelters there, worked with local leaders there. And I was always kind of seeing how, at that time, when I was kind of viewing it out of my lens, that there was always a lot of lip service paid. Because the people that got into politics that I had seen for so many years, it was always just this thing that they knew they would always do. So they lived their life in a way to say that they were going to be running for office. It was like they were checking off something. And that's never how I lived my life, right? I, after my mother passed away and then my grandfather passed away a few a month after that, I dealt with deep grief for 10 years. And during that time period, I was like just trying to survive mentally. I was t- going into grief groups, talking to people that had lost their like husband and wives after 30 40 years, people that had lost their parents later in their life. And it was actually at that time where I got a lot of education and just like empathy and how people operate and that everybody has this aspect of fear of loss and how do they cope with it. It really kind of, it was, I would say grief has been the biggest teacher of my life. And then after that, I played music for a really long time. I toured, I was a drummer. I played in bands. I wrote plays. I worked in the service industry the entire time. I've made a living. And I was always working within community. That was never, I had never stopped working in the community. And I still, still worked on housing issues when I was in Atlanta. And then when I got to New York, I worked within, um, we have a secret shelters here for um, women who've been abused. And um, I still never thought about running for office. I just, I saw, I got, can I be, can be so honest here? When I would meet politicians, I was always kind of grossed out by them. I got to be honest. I, and you know what? My grandfather, my grandfather taught at American University in Washington, D.C. My mom was born in Washington, D.C. And my grandfather was a, a World War II veteran, and he had a World War II veteran jacket. He'd always wear his army jacket. He taught American history at American University. And he would wrap me in his jacket, and he would say, when politicians would come around, and he'd say, don't talk to them. And he said, because we needed to, he said, I have to talk to them because I need the university to get more money. But, but he always said to me that there was like this, this duality of, of this in them that was like self-serving. And I, and I kind of saw it, what he meant when I got older, it was always this thing that was like, they were constantly talking about all the good that they did, but there was this like culture in Washington, D.C., where my grandfather would take me to lunch, and all the politicians were there, and they were drinking, and they were laughing, and they were having a great time, and then the other part of Washington, D.C. was broke as hell, and it was black, it was very black, very broke, neglected, the schools were falling apart, and I'm like, and these people, and this is me as a child putting, piecing this together, and then these wealthy politicians are sitting here just eating lunch, like it's not a big deal, and I remember always just being disgusted by that, and, kept, and then as I worked in shelter systems in New York City, you could tell a lot of politicians maybe visited them once or twice, but they really didn't understand what was going on with any of them. Lip service, lip service, lip service. So it wasn't until COVID that happened when I'm a very social person. You probably can tell that from my, 
personality. <laughs> and um, yeah. my husband, when he met me, he used to call me the mayor of New York because every time we'd go out somewhere, I'd talk, at least 20 people would come up and talk to me. And during COVID, I'm the chairman of my neighborhood advisory board. A lot of people in my community know me. So they would ask me for resources. They'd be like, Maya, do you know where I could, I'm dealing with a rat issue at my house right now. I need to find a new affordable house. I'm feeling really isolated right now. I don't know where to find financial assistance. Can you tell me where grants are? They were running behind on their rent. And um, so there was just this crisis that was growing and growing. And unfortunately, I'm very good in a crisis. And I realized that during a crisis, what people want is just clear communication about what's happening, why it's happening, and what can be done about that. And what I was seeing from people was that they were not getting that from people that are in office currently, their representatives currently. And then during this time period, you know, an acquaintance of mine, she's a disabled artist. She lost her gallery. It was wheelchair accessible for her. And it's a gallery she had for decades. She just couldn't afford to pay the rent there. Her landlord wouldn't negotiate with her. Then people I know started dying. My friend Felipe died. He played the, the character Pablo in my last play. He died from COVID. I started seeing my friends in the artistic and creative community were drowning. My friends in the service industry were panicked for the first time because you know, the service industry, especially bartending, tends to be recession-proof, but it wasn't COVID-proof. And so other than unemployment, there really wasn't that many guardrails in place in New York. And so, so to me at that point, I was just like, you know, I'm starting to just see how little has been done to prepare for this, even though we had known for a long time that a pandemic is possible, right? You know, because Obama staved one off. We knew it was possible, and New York, to me, was pretty unprepared. And it was at that point I was talking to my husband, and I was looking at the weakest links in New York City. And the weakest link to me was my my representative. And that's when I decided that I was going to run. Just going back to what you said about how your grandfather taught you to view or shaped you to view politicians. And I think that was true for a lot of black and brown people for a very, very long time. You know, it wasn't typical to see someone who looked like us in politics. And, you know, especially women, you know, women were, you know, we still, we don't have equal representation in government now, but even back then it was, you know, even worse. But, you know, I think now there's been a shift. I'm not really sure when it started, probably with Obama, maybe before then, you know, with Hillary Clinton, you know, kind of rising in politics. But I think there's been a shift to kind of the everyday person, the person who's actually living the experiences, running for office and making the legislation. Would you say that that's true? I would. And I would honestly give credit to black women for that. And I don't think that we ever do give credit to black women for that because, um, you know, from Fannie Lee Hamer to Shirley Chisholm to Barbara Jordan to Barbara Lee, these are women that were dealing with the dualities of discrimination based on their sex and, and, and their race. And Barbara Lee was, I think, a single mom dealing with poverty. And she ran. I think a lot of people keep giving credit to AOC for that. And I can give AOC credit. Oh, yeah. yeah, I can give credit to AOC for the way that she's been able to, to draw attention uh, within the media. But we're neglecting a whole section of women that really, I mean, like Shirley Chisholm like, breaks my heart. By the way, this is the district that she was in, right? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I would be the first black person to be elected since Shirley Chisholm if I won you know, from this district. And, you know, she tells a story about how she, the first day she got to Congress, like this literally can make me cry. It makes me so angry. She got there and she was sitting at a table and like no one would sit with her. No one would talk to her. No one would look at her. And she just felt really lonely. She had to win people over, right? Make them feel comfortable with her, right? And, uh, you know, that to me is so gross. And it's really, you know, this is not that long ago, right? 
And so, yes, it's been changing, but I'm going to give Black women really the full credit for putting themselves out there, even for her to run for president, putting themselves out there as the everyday woman. So that is that is changing. And I will, I will also say that New York, there is something exciting right now within New York politics that our city council will, has potential to be majority woman for the first time ever, right? I think we have like 14 women on city council and it could go up to it as many as 30 people in the fall time. So, so yeah, yeah. So there is a, there is a change that way. We still have a long way to go within Congress and state legislatures and things like that. But yeah, I do think things are changing. I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I do want to give black women credit for that, obviously, you know, Shirley Chisholm. And also a lot of, a lot of people don't know that Barbara Lee, when she was in college, I think she volunteered on Shirley Chisholm's campaign. So that's, that's one of those other like full circle moments, right? And there are lots of black women veterans who are there that kind of are just kind of quietly leading. You know, um, I wouldn't say Maxine Waters is quietly leading, but you know, she doesn't get the credit I think that she that she deserves as an activist and as an advocate for a lot of these progressive issues. So I just want to call out black women there. But I want to talk about your the person you're running against in the primary, Representative Carolyn Maloney. You know, I think she's been in the House since 1993, so that's like nearly 30 years. I want to talk to you generally about the debate around challenging incumbents, right? I mean, because some people make the argument that, you know, having a long tenure, you know, being there since 1993 is enough to challenge someone. And I don't necessarily think that that's enough because, again, some of the women that we've just mentioned, you know, Maxine Waters and, you know, Barbara Lee, they've been representing the people for a very long time. Um, So that just isn't enough. You know, and then they're getting a lot of challenges from the left. They say these people aren't progressive enough. And, you know, sometimes they're challenging people of color, you know, black women, and even the DLCC, the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, have stopped supporting people who are challenging incumbents. So what is your broad philosophy about challenging an incumbent generally? And why do you think it's okay in your case, in your district? One of the number one things I looked at was that almost 60% of my district voted against Maloney in 2020. So our district wants change. So right. people are just like, well, that you're challenging an incumbent. And I said, yeah, I'm challenging an unpopular incumbent, incumbent. And I don't think that people understand that because they don't live in my district. They think that Maloney is popular. They There was a study that came out that talked about the most effective legislators in Congress. And AOC was voted at like the least effective. And Maloney was, was voted as one of the most effective. But what were they basing that off of? They were basing it off of that she was able to get some of the policies through. But what are the policies that she's getting through? Kind of some some of them very good, like uh, the never again policy to to expand Holocaust education through museums. Excellent. The rest of the policies that she's trying to get through are pretty vapid, very small things that discuss like condos, like smaller pieces of legislation that don't really impact our community in a positive way. And she tends to put the same pieces, pieces of policy in over and over and over again without trying to expand it. If you compared her policy and even looked at Jerry Nadler's policy in my district, his policies tend to be much more progressive, much more broad than Maloney's does. And if you look at and then if you compare it to Barbara Lee, oh, my God, it's night and day. You know, Barbara Lee is talking about housing being a right. I mean, she wants to change that in the Constitution. You know, Maloney does not do any bold housing policy whatsoever. She's only introduced one piece of environmental protection legislation in 30 years. She never signed or co-signed. By the way, co-signing is like the least you can do in Congress. It's the easiest thing to do. And she you can see that she didn't momnibus, the Crown Act, all of these things to study reparations. She never co-sponsored 
any of these things until she started getting challenged a couple years ago. All of a sudden, she's like, oh, anything that helps black people, let me co-sign that. Because she never did it before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty embarrassing to me. And she does phone it in a lot of times. For example, I went to meet with this Bangladeshi community group in, in Astoria, Queens, to talk to them and to kind of listen to some of their concerns. She was actually there at the same time. And she was there to give them two congressional certificates for their work to help with food security, insecurity in their neighborhoods and their community. I'm really tired of congressional members like handing out things like certificates or she handed out crock pots at Queens Bridge instead of recognizing that what's needed instead is to come up with policies that are going to eradicate food insecurity and to fully fund public housing. So to me, you know, and then listen, I understand how hard it is to get those pieces of legislation, you know, to the floor to get them moved. But the fact is that she's just not doing it. She's not even drafting them. I mean, she and then she's done things like she wanted to get a panda for New York City. She wanted to do this multi-million dollar fundraiser to get a panda. And there's eight thousand children in my district dealing with with food insecurity, right? And, and she was pushing for like female statues. And I think there's a case there to talk about how we could have a federal arts program and we can talk about statues in that way. But she was doing, she does these things in the way that Bernie Sanders was renaming post office. It's so that she has a win, you know? So yeah, there's, those are some of the reasons. Now, let me just say this. I think that there are of course a lot of primaries that are happening and they are trying to push their agenda without even asking if that's what the community wants. And that's what bothers me. Right. It bothers me when like justice Dems or our revolution are not asking members of my community what they want. They have a slate that they develop that they're trying to push across the United States. Right. And um, it's not like everybody's going to like it. Like, for, for example, with NYCHA, AOC proposed something with the Green New Deal that would that would deal with housing. And there's a privatizing aspect of it. And uh, a lot of people in NYCHA were furious about it. And it's because a couple of people liked it. But a couple of people were like, what are you doing? And to me, this is a fundamental mistake with some of these challengers. Like they, they haven't gone and investigated the community to see if that's what they even want. And what I've been seeing in my community of what they want, one of the things that they're, they're wanting very much so is to deal with the fact that they're dealing with a lot of isolation, lack of opportunity, lots of, lack of accessibility. You know, one-fourth of my community is in the disabled community, right? And they don't have, uh, our, our subways constantly break down, there's transportation issues, our sidewalks aren't even accessible, housing isn't accessible. And I'll say this too, you know, I just sat in on a five-hour meeting about housing in NoHo, Soho, which is like south of Houston, which is a street in New York City, and NoHo was north of Houston, which is in other part of my district. And I watched Maloney give a very impassioned argument of why we should not touch Soho and NoHo, why it needs to be the same historic district. Well, Soho is white as hell, rich as hell, and uh, there's like less than 2% of black people that live there. So she's saying, we're not going to change this district because we don't want to change the historic nature of it. Well, you know what they were trying to change about it? They were trying to add more affordable housing. She's saying that's what's going to ruin. And by the way, I don't know what's uh, historic about Abercrombie and Fitch because that's the type of stores that are there, right? So you have these big box stores that are already there. So to me, it's like there, there's lots of things that are completely problematic with how Maloney's going about it. And honestly, it's that she's just out of touch. And I'm not saying that, and it has nothing to do with her age. Right. Because there are young people I know that are out of touch too. It has nothing to do with her age. It's the fact that she's been really wealthy for a really long time. And then she, her, the, the biggest part of her base is the wealthy part of the, of the district, which is the Upper East Side. And she is letting them dictate our policy. 
Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because I think we do need to move the debate beyond age because as we've given some examples, it really has nothing to do with age, right? You have some people who are who are older who've been in Congress for a very long time who are very much in touch with what their districts want, right? It's about getting out and talking to the people. And I know, like you said, your husband, you know, nicknamed you the mayor of New York. You probably already have your, your hand on the pulse of, you know, what people in your district want. And I wanted to talk to you about that because I some people may not know this, but you're you're an actor. And I know that one of the things that's in your platform that you're advocating for is is more help for artists, right? Um, that's a big part of your platform. But before we go into that, I want to talk about something that I learned about you, about your your grandfather, because your grandfather was also an artist, right? Um, he was a painter. And I read this really fascinating fact about him, that he was a painter during World War II in the army, and he was a part of this ghost army. And can you tell me what that is? I, I know what it is. And my, my kid, actually, my, my 10-year-old, he, he actually loves the idea of the ghost army. So for him. <laughs> Tell us what this is. It's pretty fascinating. So the ghost army was actually made up. It was a tactic. They did tactical diversions against Hitler, right? And um, it was made up of a group of artists, like Bill Blass was in it. And um, they would do things like make fake inflatable tanks so that uh, you know Hitler's army would think that there were people approaching them with tanks, but really they were just like these big, almost balloon-like tanks. They would make um, sound diversions. I mean, it saved this this unit that my grandfather was in saved about eighteen thousand people's lives. So my grandfather, just like my great grandfather, they were both artists that were serving in World War One and World War Two. But my grandfather, like I have a lot of his sketches from during that time period. And by the way, this was a classified. It was only just, it was only declassified in 1997 that this is what they were doing. It was it was something where they didn't want. This was an experiment to see if this could work, to have a bunch of artists distracting and remaneuvering what was going on during World War II. But it was really quite effective. And actually, right now they're going to be honoring the Ghost Army in Congress. So right oh, now, wow. yeah, they passed the it passed through the House. It's in the Senate right now. I think they need another 11 people to sponsor it in the Senate. And if so, I think, it, I think it's wild that my grandfather could be, his, some of his work and his buddies could be honored for the work that they did. But yeah, I mean, art has always been an essential part of, of public service, also part of war. Not always the best way, because sometimes it's used <laughs> for propaganda, right? Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. but artists do play an essential role in that, in um, helping people decipher and understand what's going on through narrative creation and, and things like that. But yeah, and then my grandfather, my great grandfather was a trumpet player in the Navy during World War One. And that's how my grandfather ended up becoming a citizen here because my grandfather, my great grandfather had came to America. He was born obviously in Chile as was my grandfather. And then um, he actually, my great grandfather was docked in New York for a while, which is wild to me. And um, then my, and my grandfather arrived in, in New York uh, throughout Ellis Island, too. But they were both artists and musicians in World War I and World War II. So, yeah, my, my family has a long history of being an artist and being a public servant. What's your plan for artists in your district? What are their needs? Well, the great thing about the federal government and working at the federal level is this would actually, any policy that I would put into law would be, effective for across the United States, but in particular for New York. My, my focus is New York, obviously, because I'm really tired of politicians 
bragging about New York City being the cultural capital of the world when they really don't aid artists and creatives in any real way, shape, or form. They kind of like this idea of the starving artists and how much we struggled here. You know, they're always capitalizing and profiting off of dead artists, right? Like Basquiat or Andy Warhol or people that were formerly here without actually aiding the artists that could be the next Basquiat that are currently living here, right? And so when I look at what artists mostly need here is subsidies. Two of the most expensive things for artists are a space to work in, and that's for visual artists. It's also for performing artists as well, or tattoo artists I'm including in this, and and on and on and on, anyone who needs a space to create. So I'd like to see spaces get subsidies that way, and i also like to see more housing subsidies. We do actually have dedicated artist housing in New York, about 250 units, but those 250 units have not been open for years. Like those artist housing came like decades ago and the people that got those spaces have not moved, right? So I'd like to see- Just 250? No, like not- sorry, 2,500, 2,500. But, okay. but there are over 300,000. Yeah, but there are over 300,000 artists, at least that live in New York City, at least 300,000. And a friend of mine who specializes in housing, she's like, I don't think you should make a distinction between artists who need housing and those that are in poverty that need housing. And I was like- you know, they're actually quite similar here, though, in New York City. So there's a massive crossover with that. You know, a lot of them work in the service industry and things like that. So they need those types of subsidies. There also needs to be an easier way to get grants. You know, the National Endowment for the Arts doesn't give to individuals. It only gives to businesses. It only gives to really financially successful places already. So we need to have like a better grant system for artists. We really could have used that during COVID instead of artists scrambling, trying to find money. I'd like to see like a FEMA type operation for artists across the United States. And I definitely would like to see a new federal arts works project, one that's been recalibrated, more inclusive than the one that happened during FDR. My grandfather's area of study actually was in New Deal art. That's like why I grew up knowing so much about the New Deal art and what didn't work. He wrote a book on it, He did, he did, yes. And that was, um, his PhD was in that specialty and also with Mexican muralists as well. But he was the one that showed me what government could do to help artists and how artists help America, right? Because artists, a lot of people think that art is frivolous and it's really not. It's how most of us get through our day. If People don't tend to think that when they're watching television that there are any art to that. Of course, there's writers and there's actors and people that study. If you're listening to music on the way to work, those are artists making that music. You know, if there's something beautiful, a building that you like, that's somebody that was a creative that created that. So people don't realize how much art really infuses our lives and unfortunately the people that are making our lives better and imbuing it with a sense of wellness are the ones that are suffering and they really suffered greatly during COVID and to me I think it's wonderful that Schumer some of us call him Grandpa Schumer um, (laughs) I think it's wonderful that he was like we gotta save the stages and that's important but it was also like save the stagehand you know, save the yeah. lighting operator, save the actor. Yeah. And that really didn't happen. There's going to be a long way of recovery for them. We also need to make sure that actors unions and things like that are stronger. That's really up to the artists to, to communicate how they want the unions to, to work better for them. But there's also like male artists who are left out of unions in New York. And there's a lot of male artists in New York City who would like to belong to a union and don't have access to that right now. And a lot of them like lost their businesses as well, lost their, their main income during COVID because you can't be next to somebody and do their nails during COVID, right? So to me, there was all these places 
that lacked protection. And I would like to see that done at the federal level. We know that we have the money for it. It's just not being allocated properly. And for me, if I was, when I am elected, I would be the first artist to actually serve on the Congressional (laughs) Arts Caucus. This is something that's supposed to help aid artists, but they don't, they have no artists on it. They have no idea what artists need. And even when the mayors, even when the people were running for mayor of my city, I read each of their artist platforms and I was like, these are terrible. Every, like across the board, every single one of them, it was terrible. Even our, the borough president, like I was just like, like Mark Levine uh, is going to become our next borough president. But I read his artist platform. I'm like, I'm an art. I think his is going to be good. And I read it and I was disappointed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because if you, and it's not, their fault in the sense that if you are not an artist, you've not lived the life of an artist, if you've not lived in the, if you haven't worked a lot in the service industry, you don't know what they need, you know? Yeah. I can't think of a representative who've really thought about what artists needs in a serious way and in a consistent way. Right. Um, you know, we all appreciate it, but if it's gone when it's missing, I think we'll realize how much support artists actually need to keep, you know, the beauty around us and keep programs together. Okay. Anyway, I, agree. I don't know what I'm saying there. No, no. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, I think that people, I think people go, Oh, I really, I like this aspect of art, but they're not really, thinking about what it takes to be an artist and the amount of work that goes into it. For example, my husband is finishing his MFA right now. He is teaching at school part-time. He is full-time bartending and he's finishing his dissertation. That's a book that he has to finish writing. He's editing another book right now. It's, you know, mentally, there's a lot of mental exhaustion that goes on with being an artist, but also having to like survive during this time. This is why a lot of people don't become artists. They're just like, you know what? Right. I don't enjoy poverty. So I don't want to do this but we need artists that's why we need to support them i know you've also been a passionate advocate for voting rights that's something that you focus on you've written about it a lot so your district right now it's a deep blue district and i don't know what the turnout rate is there but just i want to talk about it on the national stage you know because the john lewis voting rights act passed in the house right i don't know what's going to happen in the senate it's probably going to get stuck in the senate like a lot of you know really good legislation that has passed in the house and you know there's been this debate going back and forth about how to get these things through the senate you know, we barely have a majority in the Senate, barely, just barely, right? Which is why a lot of things are getting stuck. And there's this debate about how do we move these things forward? And if the right thing is to get rid of the filibuster, I think the right thing is to get rid of the filibuster, but that doesn't seem to be happening. I don't know if that's going to happen. So what is your take on what we should do there? Well, honestly, I think it begins with storytelling. It begins with narrative and it really begins with our press, I think that they've done, I think one, Democrats need to come up with a better narrative of like, because Republicans are not our partner in voting rights. They don't want voting rights. They don't, they can't win. If there's voting rights, they would have to fundamentally change who they are, what they stand for. And I'm talking about elected Republicans. Let me get that. I want to make that straight because registered Republicans, there are a lot of registered Republicans that are for voting rights. They're for trans rights. They're for modernizing SSI. Republicans in office who want to keep power know that they cannot support voting rights because they will be voted out of office, okay? And I think the Democrats need to be clear in that approach. They need to be clear on why Republicans are against it, and they're not. Republicans have a, have a easier narrative than Democrats because this is a narrative they've been cultivating for under, for over 150 years now. And so Democrats need to figure out what their winning narrative is on why voting rights is essential. And to me, it should start with the fact and they should make sure that the press understands this, is that our democracy will die. And that means, by the way, that our free press will die. They need to make sure the media knows you're about to be out of a job, too. It's not just us. When our democracy dies, you're out of business. 
because you're going to be replaced by a state press. You're not going to be, you're not going to exist anymore. And Democrats have not been effective in, in discussing it. And I think that there was, there is something that's really problematic about our press is that a lot of them think that things are hyperbole. Like I remember that, um, it might have been Crystal, is it? No, no, it was Brian Seltzer. I remember this. He was like, oh, people are making too big of a deal about SCOTUS being conservative as if they're going to take away abortion. <laughs> I mean, we have a press right now that is so blasé when it comes to women's rights and comes to BIPOC rights or LGBTQ rights. They're so blasé. And why? Because they're mostly cis hetero males, white males, that do not see how any of this affects them. They're thinking, hey, if the revolution does come, we'll be fine. So to me, it really starts with the fact that we have to be clear in the narratives of why this is going to matter. Because right now, it's going to be a hell of a time to try to get it through the Senate without killing the filibuster. And we already know that while Cinema and Joe Manchin had expressed that they would be supportive of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, it's still not enough. Right. So, yeah, I think that I think that Biden, I think that Harris, I think that they need to sit down. I think they should just sit down and talk to Pelosi because she's the one that understands how to get it done. You know, but I think that they need to figure out how do we communicate and message on this? Because otherwise what happens and this is what made me mad what Biden did was then he puts the emphasis and the stress on black women who are organizing, Stacey Abrams, Latasha Brown, like women who are the ones that are going to have to figure out how do we save and protect our democracy because we're going to be the first ones harmed, right? So I don't know. I would like to see I would like to see Biden be more aggressive about that, knowing that there's only so much he can do right now. But um, I hope he does recognize that this this will be the beginning of the end if we if he becomes a lame duck in 2022. I know that there's people online right now that are also kind of like sitting there, what do they call them, the armchair quarterbacks, like just sitting there just being like, oh, you know, it's going to be bloodbaths. Democrats miss, you know, they're just being so blase about it too in their own way. I'm like, no, no, no. We have time to course correct this. We have time to come up with strong narratives about why we need this to happen and to get even like to get moderates and independents excited about the idea of why we should have voting rights. And also, I think the Democrats should be saying, listen, this protects Republican voting rights. This protects Republican seniors, disabled Republican seniors, on and on and on. I think the Democrats have to be better about the narrative. Yeah. Don't you think that most Democrats are on board and have come around to realizing the importance of this? And, you know, even, you know, Cinema and Manchin do, but they don't think it's worth actually, you know, getting rid of the filibuster for. I mean, in the, over the past several months, I think there's been something like 11 or 12 Democrats in the Senate who've come around to say, yes, you know, we want to nix, we need to nix this, the filibuster to get voting rights passed. And Bernie Sanders was one of those. And, and, you know, earlier in the year, later last year, he wasn't in favor of getting rid of the filibuster. So everyone has come around with the exception of those two, well, right? Well, Cinema has always shown us who she is. I mean, to me, she's always lived at the political uh, end of the horseshoe, right? At one point, she was like, uh, you know, I'm really anti-war. I'm really, in a way, she almost was a leftist in a little bit of a way. And now she's like, run. she just kind of crossed over to the other side of the horseshoe. And to me, where that is, what, that, what exists there is anti-blackness, right? I'm, I'm calling it out. I think that with cinema, there's a couple of things going on. I think that she is somebody that I, I really do think there's an aspect of anti-blackness that streak there with her. And 
maybe even mansion because they know how much is this is going to harm black people. And they, they know this fundamentally, they know this. And two, I also think they don't want people to know who their donors is. If they get rid of the filibuster, what happens? It's not just the John Lewis voting night acts that goes through, but it might be the, for the people act that goes through too, even though like Joe Manchin has asked for some changes, but there is part of for the people act would be revealing of like donors, like getting rid of this. Like, I hate the word dark money, dark money. There'd be a revealing of that. And there's something that is making cinema and mansion say, I don't want that exposure there. And that's by the way, when we talk about story, when I talk about narrative and why the press fails us sometimes is they're not asking those questions. I would like to see the media figure out a way of like, why aren't you supporting the filibuster and asking them, I have my guesses of why they don't want to do it. And I think people are scared to kind of call it out. What do you mean Joe Manchin is anti, you know, is anti-black or whatever? <laughs> well, I'm just saying that if you are against voting rights, if you're against this, and the people that are fighting the hardest for voting rights are black people who know how affected they'll be with being disenfranchised in our democracy, what what does that say? What other reason does he have for not for for not supporting it? Right? What is what does cinema have? Um, your guess is as good as mine on the other parts of it, but I'd like to see the press press them about those issues more because they really don't do it. And I, and I think that the legacy media, I'll, I'll say this, I still think that legacy media has this really self-serving story about itself. They're saying that they're telling both sides of a story and they're saying it in a fair and this unbiased way. But at the same time, they're still deciding what, what is told and what isn't told and what entry point they're coming in on it. And I think with voting rights, the media has really failed us. But they have, they really don't know what perspective to really cover this from. They really still think that Republicans have a valid argument and Democrats have a valid argument. I'm like, how is it valid to cut off millions of people's access from the ballot box? Where is the validity in that? But they are still reporting it as if there is some legitimacy there. And to me, that is so grotesque. It is so upsetting. And it's because they're seeing it from their perspective. We still have an overwhelmingly white media that doesn't understand cultural nuance. They don't, they've never developed natural relationships or built bridges of communication to different communities, the disability community, native communities, black communities, and so on. They're never looking at stories in, with, with multiple lenses that they need to to cover voting rights. And this is what is a big, huge failure. So I really wish that people would see in the way in which the free press is failing us. This is why one of the reasons why I'm running for Congress is I would like to see um, the dismantling of conglomerate media, more support for local media, more support for public media, because I think there has to be more sources. I mean, you know, you'll see right now, you know, as a side note that Haiti, I was looking for coverage on Haiti and I didn't get any until two in the morning. Yeah, there's no coverage. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, wow. Well, Maya Contreras, thank you so much for joining me again. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again. And, you know, good luck. I wish you all the best on your campaign. Sure. And thank you. Of course. And the next time we talk, I do want to tell you more about my community and its makeup. But we will get into that at another time.